dealing with a cancer diagnosis and treatment, the role of Dublin as part of the state and whether it gets too much and other cities and counties deserve more. Being in the Department of Finance as one of its most senior figures at the time of the Troika and the country been nearly bankrupt. What type of houses or apartments we need to live in, whether we should rent or buy, and the potential for social unrest because of housing inequality. These are all of the topics that I discuss with John Moran in this latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. John Moran, thank you so much for coming and joining me at the kitchen table. When I got in contact with you to ask you to come and do Magnified interview, I had no idea that you have cancer or that you're undergoing treatment with chemotherapy. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Well, I like to think I no longer have cancer, right? So I'm still doing treatment. Um, I suppose like everything else, it was a bit of a shock at the beginning of the year because there had really been no signs. Um, But everyone has told me, try and be positive, you know, work your way through it. And in the, in, the, in the range of cancers you could get, I have bowel cancer. So, I mean, it's a, a warning to everybody listening to go and get checked because you may not actually know what's, what's lurking inside you, which I didn't clearly know. But that's actually one of the curable ones. And, I mean, I know we, we, you were kind of surprised when I walked in with a full head of hair, you know, luckily enough. You, you would not know, looking at you, that you were going through chemotherapy. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing what the medical advancements have become. I mean, I'm, I'm being treated at absolutely great crew in, in the Galway Clinic. Um, but it's so fine-tuned now at this stage that, you know, they're warning me, if you start to feel sick, you take the anti-nausea tablets, you tell us about it. And actually, for people out there who... Because it is frightening, I suppose, when you get that first message, but but it doesn't have to be. I mean, you know, it, it's really important that people just go early to, to, to get checked up. And I suppose I'll end up becoming... It'll be my new crusade when I get through this at the end of the year to, 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 to tell people about that because, you know... It's not as bad as so some people clearly suffer badly on this, and obviously there are different types of cancer. But, but for for people of our age, and we're roughly about the same age, I think, you know, I think it's really important that people sort of check things like bowel cancer and the others, and just yeah. But hang on, you didn't find out was the result of a routine check, though. No, did no. You? In fact, the most dangerous part of this whole thing, I suppose, is you know, I haven't spoken much about this in the last couple of months. I've sort of just disappeared, um, you know, while I'm going through this was that actually it ended up being a total blockage of the intestinal system that caused, in effect, a little Vesuvius to start erupting in, in, my, in my system and I had to be rushed to hospital and when, in 12 hours I was already through the operation, you know. And if anything, that was the really risky part. I mean, I kind of, you know, never really asked the doctors what the mortality rate is, but, you know, Dr. Google would tell you that it was one in four chances. So it was a real wake-up call going through that first 24 hours, but I suppose I was lucky it all happened so quickly because it was an emergency that I managed to kind of not be thinking about it too much and just get through it and woke up the following day, I'm alive, second part of my life begins, you know. That's a very positive approach to take because were you not still in shock about the fact that you could have died, that you'd been through immense pain before you actually had the operation and that you had a road to recovery ahead of you? Yeah, I... I mean, I, I don't know if I've even fully internalized the whole thing yet. I mean, I suppose it's only Easter, right? So it's, while it's a number of months ago, it's still you're in the middle of the process and you're focusing on it. I mean, the great news is I have seven treatments done out of 12, right? So I feel like I'm over the hump. We're on the final stretch. And, and, and luckily enough, the negative impacts haven't been that bad. But I suppose at the time, 
possibly because I'd never really been sick before. Um, you know, going under a general anaesthetic was more frightening than actually what was the reason for it. I was thinking, I wonder do oh, everybody does everybody wake up from this stuff? And 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 I suppose it it was interesting because one of the observations I have is just how people in the medical system, and my brother's doctor, so he was a, a good source of, of, of kind of information, um, how little they know we don't know, the people that are outside. So you kind of are told you're having an operation, general anaesthetic, you know, you're going to be knocked out. You're kind of thinking, what are the statistics here? And of course, there's more chance of getting knocked down by a bus crossing the Ratmines Road than not waking up from a general anaesthetic. But that's not the way your brain is thinking at that time, you know, because you're out of control. And I, I suppose in some ways... For me, it's important that relatively quickly, because the chemo started quickly, that I felt I was getting back in control of of the, of the journey. So that all I knew is, got to look after myself. When I'm tired, I rest. When I'm not tired, I stay positive and do stuff. And driving through the 12 treatments. And then hopefully in the new year, we can actually reverse the sort of the colostomy and the stoma bag. And next summer, I'm back to hopefully health, and, but just watching a bit more carefully. Um, any brain fog as a result of the chemo because I mean you trade on the use of your brain yeah it, it was funny right? so the first thing everyone says is you've got to stop working and you've got to stop all this you should be resting and things like that and then I realised well, what do I do when I rest right I'll be reading books and listening to podcasts and you know doing that stuff and I kind of do a lot of that work anyway and, and, and so so I've been doing a lot more starting to do a lot more reading probably a bit more with a bit more luxury than before uh, way too much time spent following Twitter and, and, and social media stuff that I probably will never need to know, right? Um, there are days when you're tired. I think it's more than the brain fog. I mean, you've kind of got this strange, what I've described almost as a second day hangover. And I don't really, you know, well, as I get older, I get more hangovers, right? Uh, you didn't get them before. But you know that second day, if you remember what that was like, you know, where... Yeah. You're not right, but you're not wrong. It's like there's something, you're not feeling fully like eating or you're just not into jumping into to doing something. And so there's a cycle, which I've now learned to, to, to manage with my body, where during the actual treatment, which is about a two and a half, three day sort of exercise, about 48 hours, you're, you're on steroids, you're taking the drug, you're okay, you're, you're able to go. I've gone to the concert hall, I've gone to, to events down, down in Limerick, but then the day or two after that is when it's almost like your body suddenly doesn't have the support of the steroid treatment and it gets tired. And that's that moment. I don't know if it's really a fog. It's just that you don't quite feel right. And so you know that that's not the day to do a, a big decision, you know, and, and you just kind of manage. But now, like today, we're over that first couple of days. It feels normal again. And I know it's that now until next Thursday of next week when we kind of redo the cycle and, you know. I guess it's it's happening, right? I mean, and I just have to to get through it. But your positivity is almost infectious. It's remarkably good way to approach what is a life changing issue. It's life changing, but it doesn't need to be. I mean, I, maybe I'm not looking at this in it with enough. Serious. I mean, I think it was a serious operation. There'll be another fairly serious operation, you know, in 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 the new year, and and you're going through this process. But I think the fact that you know that if you do the right things, it gets cured. And I, and I sort of know also that in a way I got lucky because I had the operation before I even thought about cancer or anything. So, so there wasn't that, I mean, it must be horrendous for some people and I've talked to people since obviously now everybody kind of talks and shares cancer stories when, when you're joining the, the club, so to speak. Um, I think it's really difficult for people mentally who, who kind of believe they may have it 
have to go for a test, have to wait for results, then have to wait for, for an operation. Because I think that mental anguish is a lot worse. Mine was luckily, uh, some, in some respects, reversed. I did the operation. Cancer was the last thing I was thinking of. You know, I thought I had some major constipation of some sort, you know, and, and in fact, so did the doctors initially. So, you know, because there was no obvious signs. I mean, since then, I've learned that genetically back through the family, if I look back at, you know, grandmothers dying and things like that and try to understand what it may have been, we can see that there's actually a sort of a, a genetic history that we probably hadn't noticed. And so it's, again, I, I, as I said, my crusade now is, you know, people should be paying attention to this stuff, which I wasn't necessarily. And, and just, it costs nothing to, to go and get checked. But you, you can... We, we move on for that. You've mentioned the word crusade twice already. You are a man for crusades a bit, aren't you? When you get enthusiastic about something, you just go for it. Yeah, well, that is me. I mean, I, I kind of love disrupting the system, you know, and you can see things that are wrong. And I think it's important that there, it's not just me, but I think it's important that people understand that change doesn't automatically happen. I mean, it, it does require people to push it. It requires people to, to point out the issues sometimes and just actually, you know, identify issues and, and gather momentum around around the need for change. Well, know? the reason I, I contacted you to do this podcast is that I'm really interested in the issue of housing. And for our younger generations in particular, how they're going to be able to afford to rent or to buy, where they're going to be able to live, that it is possibly the biggest political issue and societal issue that we have at present. And I know that you're exceptionally interested in it from your time as the chairman of the Land Development Authority. But going back even beyond that, when having been brought into the Department of Finance, first as second secretary, then as the secretary general of the Department of Finance, that you have been really thoughtful about all of the issues in relation to housing. So to start I'm also really cognizant of the fact that you are a big supporter of the idea that this country is not Dublin only, that you are determined that the other cities, particularly your own Limerick, have to be given an opportunity to flourish. Are we too Dublin-centred in this country? Um, Without doubt. I mean, we are, right? Um, And I mean, I got into town yesterday and... Coming to Dublin now, and it's kind of strange to say this as somebody who's kind of gone up in Ireland, although I've travelled a lot, right, um, almost reminds me of going to London um, 20 years ago from Dublin or from Ireland. I mean, there was a massive gap in the sense walking the streets of London of wealth and, and you know, quality of restaurants and stuff like that. And, and I mean, I'll be the last to, to sort of be critical of regional cities, but the reality is, is that they are not the same. You know, the the amount of investment that we've seen in Dublin, the amount of wealth that's in Dublin um, is is just completely different to what's happening elsewhere. And and I suppose it's not that we don't want Dublin to succeed as a country, right? We need it to do. But like the debacle in Dublin Airport has shown, you know, perhaps more visibly than anything else to people, what happens when you put all your eggs in one basket? I mean, people were skipping through the, the airport in Shannon from parking to, 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 to having a coffee on the right side of, so to speak, the other side of the security line in 10 or 15 minutes, you know. And I, I think the problem in countries like Ireland, um, and there are many like that, right? I mean, where you have a single capital city and a single centre of commerce, 
is that there's a big blind spot on this because the policymakers tend to live in that space. Um, the industry that might be arguing for something else is also in that space. Whereas you think of other cities or countries like Canada, for example, Germany, you know, the Netherlands, even the US, Washington is not New York or California. There's a balance of, of, of debate around things that, that you just don't have in countries like the UK, where it's all in London. And of course, we have, you know, Boris's famous levelling up agenda. But it's, just, well, I mean, he may or may not have been serious about doing it. It is a very serious issue. And I think one that we don't do. And, and I suppose we talked about housing. I mean, I, if I have concerns about Ireland, and I mean, Ireland is a great country. I mean, let's, we, we hear an awful lot of people complaining about Ireland, but yet we are attracting people from all over the world. We look at it and we can talk about that in, in, in more detail. But I think we have at least two major fissures, you know, are kind of, you know, on which the earthquakes could happen, right? The f and they both, in many ways, are similarly connected to this housing issue. The first is the people who own housing and the people who don't. And that's getting worse as we our house ownership is going down. And it's not to say that that I necessarily believe we should all own houses either because there are reasons why that's not necessarily a good model uh, if you reform the rental market. But the other fissure is this one between the pale and the rest of the country. And Project Ireland 2040, which I suppose I was involved in some respects after my time in the department and the consultation and that, I think made an effort to try and come up with the desirable rebalancing but we're not seeing that in action. Because, John, it strikes me that this is a wonderful country for writing reports about the things that we should do, but a dreadful country for implementation. It's a country that can do implementation on some things. So COVID, for example, you know, I, I mean, it, obviously they were going through a crisis and, and maybe mistakes were made. But in general terms, Ireland probably did well. We managed to vaccinate an entire nation from a health system that was already under pressure, right? So I think we can implement when we put our minds to it. In, in times of crisis, maybe? But in times of crisis, right? Now, we're in the middle of a housing crisis, so we should be able to implement, right? I, I think what we perhaps are less good at, if I, if I were kind of to think of my time in the department and subsequently and indeed looking at it, is I think we're not a great country for doing disruptive reform. Like you think about the difficulties we have putting in bicycle lanes in our cities, you know, or even bus connects. As soon as it gets to a, a change that hits against a vested interest or a status quo, I think we're much, we find it much harder to do that. But do we not have a problem in this country that, you know, when we, we know what our difficulties and problems are, we often know what the solutions are going to be. But when we try to implement solutions, like putting in cycle lanes or building new apartment blocks, then the small number of voices become prominent against these things and end up dictating what the rest of us do. Um, I think we do, and particularly when it's disruptive reform, right, as we were saying earlier. Um, and that's the hardest thing for policymakers to do, right? Um, and I suppose by policymakers, I include politicians, the, the public administration and the rest, right? Because the politicians are obviously and understandably looking, how am I going to get re-elected? So they're kind of looking at people who are currently in that area and what they want to get out of it. And forgetting all the new people, for example, that want to live in that area, uh, who will ultimately become voters, but properly for the, the following election, when it's too late if they've lost their seat. You know, and, and, and I think that's really hard, right? Um, I also, though, think, going back to the Dublin-centric thing, that 
one of the things I've been campaigning for for from years since I left the department, because in some ways I didn't just see how Dublin-centric decision-making was in Dublin, right, is, is we really need at this stage of our growth as a country 100 years on to devolve power down to other people rather than holding it all in Merrion Street. Uh, and that we need to do for many, many reasons. I mean, apart from the fact that it just puts the decision-making closer to the to the people that, that, that matter, right? But it removes from government a lot of the Twitter noise, right? Because much of the Twitter noise is really local. Um, and, and if our national legislature was actually focusing on national policy issues rather than in many ways the implementation of the policy, which was being done locally in much empowered councillors and 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 other forms of directly elected mayors and 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 city officials or county officials in 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 our counties i think we would find that is a different analysis we wouldn't be spending time looking at national media about an issue that's down in west limerick well i want to talk to you about an issue in limerick in particular because this one has interested me i wouldn't know limerick particularly well it would tend to be get the train down to colbert station walk across to Isleman Park or up to the Gaelic Grounds on the Ennis Road. And I wouldn't know much of Limerick beyond that, except for going down regularly for sporting fixtures. But it has struck me, uh, particularly when you come out of Colbert Station and you make the walk down towards O'Connell Street, there's a lot of dereliction almost and decrepitude. And, and yet there's some beautiful old buildings as well that look like they could be, if restored, absolutely beautiful. And... I'm very taken by the fact you had in the Land Development Agency an idea for Colbert Station and the lands around it, which would be transformative, I think, for starting to recreate or rebuild Limerick City rather than the suburbs. Where are you at with that? Well, first of all, I'm not in the LDA anymore. So, oh, well, I know so, that. You're a former uh, chairman. Just in case anyone else doesn't, doesn't, yeah. d- 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 doesn't understand that, right? So, like, it, it's sort of funny, right? So when you're in national policy... Um, Again, I go back to this devolution issue, right? Um, it is actually quite hard to have the conversations and the policy in a way become real, right? Um, because you are a bit removed from the implementation, as I say, and, 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 and stuff on the ground. And Limerick is home for me, right? I mean, I grew up there. I, I moved back there, particularly at the beginning of COVID. And, and it is sort of where we're settling now, right, myself and Damien, um, for, for good. But... Because I know the city so well, it is so frustrating to see the potential of an urban space that was in effect designed in large part in the, in the, in the, in the 1800s, right? With all of the type of toolkit that we should be using in, the, in 2022 in terms of urban planning, leading the design and the, and the output of what was there. It's so frustrating to see that in effect not advance and not reach its potential. Now, it in many ways epitomizes what's going on in Ireland, right? Um, in that it's targeted for population growth because it makes sense. It's so centrally located between the other regional cities beside Shannon Airport, beside the port. We're on the wave of a, an amazing opportunity for Ireland in terms of offshore wind and of course that's all likely to happen on the west coast of Ireland with finance as a port right so the amount of external investment that you should see into that region if we don't lose the opportunity is 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 far in excess of anything we've seen but it's an the midwest is currently 
underperforming the rest of the country in population growth. And as you say, the city of centre of Limerick is in a way languishing, unloved in many ways, right? And much of what's not happened. So, so in a sense, the you, I walk around Rat Mines now this morning coming here, and I used to have you know the typical student flat in Rat Mines. You know when I was in university more years ago than I, than I care, and you can see what has been happening in terms of the the love that's been given to dwellings in this area and how the whole area has has transformed because of that. And and the Georgian Quarter in Limerick is just waiting for that to happen as well, right? But but there's a mismatch between what needs to happen those houses in terms of the care that they need to get to be restored either as sort of you know single homes or as co co kind of you know units that many people can live in and what's actually happening in the public realm and in the public investment in Limerick so there's been a lot of noise recently about the fact that we now have you know the funding for a road to fines by passing it there which is 450 million euros but no sign of 450 million euros being spent to actually make Limerick City work and, and really transform by putting in better schools, park. So, so what you get then is, is a city at the moment, if I were to observe, that's almost pushing in two different directions at the same time and they haven't figured out which one it is. One being the transport-oriented type of development that Colbert was to epitomise, where you would build, or should I say rebuild the city, um, around the old railway lines that have been left to go into disrepair and therefore have a really sustainable city. Your, your vision, as against what is now planned, what do you think would be possible to have there? How many housing units could you have? How many people could live there? What sort of facilities would you provide for them? Yeah, so, 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 so Colbert, for anyone who doesn't understand, right, um, as we think about the land, is, is really brownfield sites that belong to the... The, the local authority, CIA and the HSE, all of which are contiguous to each other and were sitting on, on railway lines. And, and literally, you know, Colbert Station is much more central to, to Limerick City than, 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 say, Houston Station would be, right? It's more like Connolly Station for those listening from Dublin. Um, so the idea was, as designed by the... We got, basically, at the LDA, a panel of five architects. So having identified that there was this huge landmass that was underutilised and having gotten buy-in from CIE and the HSE and, 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 and the city authorities to the extent they had it to allow the LDA to analyse it, we sent a team of five different architects, which I thought was a really clever idea by the Royal Institute of Architects because sometimes in Ireland what we do is we tend to put one team and then everybody tries to pick what's wrong with that design. So the idea was to let five independent architects look at the same problem and come up with five independent solutions. So people would say, I like a bit of that and a bit of that, but there was no let's just all attack. I mean, and, and the, the, the scale of what could have been put into that area was probably fifteen to 20,000 people, right? And the vision I would have had at the time would have been 20,000 people all living two minutes away from the main train station, which connects them to Dublin and Cork, and, and, and indeed five minutes walk from what is considered to be the city centre. They don't need cars. You know, we can have sharing of cars, much more modern living than we are currently accustomed to have in, in, in Ireland. Um, Sadly, in the process, then, you know, the master plan was supposed to be delivered in March 2021, got delayed for another six months um, because of various other blockages that came into the system. And that was last September, and, and it would seem very little has happened since, right? So that's frustrating for me. Despite the fact we have a housing crisis, and the reason I'm asking you to do this podcast and to talk about that is because 
The potential in Colbert Station can be replicated all over the country. And if we're serious about dealing with the housing crisis for our younger generations and providing affordable housing or apartment living to them, then surely this is the type of example of a thing. Do this, get it going, and get loads of them going, and yet we're not doing it. And that's frustrating. Me, as just as much as it's frustrating you, right? I mean, and, and I, I think when I think back to... I'm not sure we had all the magic answers, right, in the, in the, in the, in the period... I was in Marion Street with a troika, right? But there was an incredible discipline, which I think was an internal discipline as much as a troika-enforced discipline, but that helped because the troika were there as a, as a, as a PR machine to, to broadcast the thing. To, to, to identify what needed to happen, not everything, but the most serious things, the big game changers, right? And... As you know, we became rather famous across Europe because in the entire three years of the Troika, we never missed a deadline. And I had real support in that because we kind of managed that out of the Department of Finance because if I thought a deadline was being missed, there were warning lights coming down the track and I could either go to Michael Noonan as the minister and say, you need to talk to one of your colleagues in another department. Or ultimately, you know, the Taoiseach at the time in the Kenny was adamant that he wanted to know if it was a slippage and he was going to make it happen. And of course, the Portuguese then started following us and it became a, another article of faith down in Portugal that they also wanted to deliver. And Colbert is a perfect example of a type of project. There's a similar one down in the Cork Docklands. You know, there are a couple in, 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 in Dublin that, that would be very well suited for that kind of driving. You know, and, and I always have this thing that like, I don't know how many times I've been in the system recently where you have a meeting and somebody says, oh, we need to have another meeting because we've run out of time. And they all start looking at the diaries three weeks from now instead of their diaries that afternoon or tomorrow, you know. And the quicker you have meetings, the quicker things happen. I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, like we're, lots of people are sporting fans, right? but if there's an All-Ireland draw, okay, and they're doing a replay, somebody in the GA has to pick the date for the replay. If they pick the following Sunday, you can be absolutely sure that both teams will actually do all their preparation for that match in one week. If you give them four weeks, they'll take four weeks. And the outcome will still be the same, except it'll be three weeks later before the Sam Maguire or the Lee McCarthy can start touring schools in that, in that area. And, and, and I think we're, we're seeing a lot of slippage in that. I mean, we can start blaming planning authorities and everyone else, but, but the core issues of how quickly are meetings happening? What's the governance around them? Who's driving stuff? If Dara O'Brien is seeing blockages, can he ring the Taoiseach? Can he get the stuff out? I mean, you know, I'm still hearing about, oh, maybe land won't transfer and things like that across the system to make it happen. There should be no excuse for that. I mean, the state, the state ultimately, state owns, ultimately it. owns it. And I think the reason there shouldn't, I mean, that for me, Colbert was, was not just about Limerick, right? I mean, it was about an entirely different model of approaching development in the country, such that we hadn't really seen, right? Um, it was in many ways based on, there was a really good NESC report which analysed land, which led to the formation of the LDA, right? But but I don't think, I mean, we in Ireland think about land a lot, right? I mean, you know, because of our history. But I don't think we've ever properly thought through the sort of the role of the state, the role of private property. You know, as soon as we draw a line around a, a square metre of land and allow it to be owned by somebody. That person has a privilege and an entitlement and the rest of the country are excluded from that metre of land. Even though the value of that land, the, the ability of that land to do anything 
is really dictated by the laws of Ireland. And I don't think we have that right. And I think until we face up to that in a serious way and analyse whether this property... We go back to the fissures, we talked about the earthquake of the haves and the have-nots. You know, because ultimately, the more land becomes valuable because we put more, go back to our Dublin concentration, the more stuff we put in Dublin, the more Dublin becomes where you want to live, the more valuable Dublin becomes. And that is vested, not even in the state in many ways, it's vested in the landowners who are lucky enough to have bought Dublin 50 years ago. Just come back though briefly to Colbert and the area. And you say it could be 15 to 20,000 people. Apartments? But what are the facilities? Because, you know, we also have a history in the past of social housing in Ireland and not putting in the right facilities with it, like the apartments in the flats in Ballymun in the 1960s. What would you do to make sure that this would be a desirable place for people to live? Yeah, so so desirable place to live is is the key, right? Um, Because the master plan as it developed... Uh, at least oh, I probably only saw mainly the versions up to the March when I left, right, um, was designed to provide services, public amenities and the rest. So first, first of all, it was largely all apartment living, right, um, to the extent that there was any lower density at that stage. I think it has changed a bit since. Um, it was designed to only just deal with overlooking and things like that. Another thorny issue in terms of urban redevelopment, because why should you have the right to not necessarily have your garden overlooked if, you live in, if you're lucky to live in a city centre with all the amenities of a city centre, right? So again, this is this conflict we have in not dealing with land versus the public good. But, but, but simply put, it was intended to be all apartment and mixed use. So it had the commercial office space, it had the retail and it had the facilities, and we were trying to scale the facilities, which was a really important thing for me, not just for the people living there, but to cope with the the, the gap in the provision of public services and playgrounds and sports complexes and everything else that is actually currently in place in terms of a major gap in Balnacara West and Gary Owen and areas in the Limerick city centre that were largely social housing, which never got facilities at the time. Just to put it in context, and... I'm hoping that there are people all over the country listening to this, but maybe what people in Dublin might think of that, you know, we have new towns developing like Adamstown, uh, Cherrywood, Balgriffin, whatever. But what you are looking at and maybe what there is a need to do in a number of our cities is inner city regeneration, sort of rebuilding new towns within the city centre. It's a lovely way of putting it. I mean, I consider it like building neighbourhoods within the city centre, but for full walkable and very livable neighbourhoods that are downtown. Now, the the issues about places like Limerick, which is why I think Limerick is a perfect testbed for this, is that Limerick is one of those cities which is inverted, right, compared to the norm. The city centre is not at a premium in terms of pricing. It's at a discount compared to the suburbs, right, which has meant that you have large tracts of land that the state either has control of or could have control of available for purchase now when there's not the same premium right so so again going back to the nesc report but it's not just in ireland it happens in denmark it happens in our countries the right way for ireland to operate now that we have loads of money which we didn't have 10 years ago is we should be taking control and buying as much of that land as possible because everything that we do to improve it whether it's putting a new hospital down into a neighbourhood like happened in the Children's Hospital and the impact of that around Rialto, that 
benefits should accrue to the citizens of Ireland via the state, not to a developer who speculated on the land. And, and, and that requires a much more active management of land and a much more active compulsory purchase power, not necessarily exercising it, because I think just the mere having it will, will discipline conversations. Because every time we add value to a square metre of land in Cork or Limerick or Galway or even here in Dublin, you want that value to go back to the state. And it's that value that allows you to put in all the infrastructure. We do it the other way around. We kind of let developers have all the value and then we try and reclaim it back in development levies, which they claim are causing them problems in, in terms of things. If the state owned the land, I mean, Hong Kong financed their transport system basically by owning land. Singapore owns, I think it's like 80% of the land of Singapore Island is owned by the state. It's only given to people to build housing for a finite period of time. And it comes back to the state because actually, again, going back to this private property thing, the best use of that land in 50 years' time or 100 years' time may not be what we think it is today. And it certainly may not be what would happen if we give that to somebody as a private ownership. And, and what Limerick has, and indeed there are other cities, I mean, and parts of Dublin have that as well, right, is, is there is a unique opportunity for the state to take control of large tracts of land in Limerick. Going back to the, the, the reference you made to George and Limerick, George and Limerick was built by a developer who really had very little capital, right? All he had was the land and an idea. And what he did was he took the area of land, which was outside the city walls at the time, because he didn't want to pay the taxes that were in the city and he didn't like the city fathers. And he said, I'll build almost my own city outside, right, in, in the 1800s. But what he did was he basically drew up the plans, got some of the best architects around to design this new city, and then sold each individual plot to people who had capital to build. So while you might drive around Limerick and think everything looks very similar in terms of Georgian, it was all a series of individual almost developers or house owners who built on those sites to a plan, and they had to follow. And of course, the uniformity of the, of the designs was what creates this, this gorgeous sort of symmetry and in the streets but but everything was designed the state could be doing the same what i wanted to happen in colbert and i hope will still happen is the state would design out the entire area so you would know on which piece of land there's a park on which piece of land there's a cycle path right because if the state isn't doing that in a context of multiple ownership it's very hard, right? Because you try and bring six people into a room, all of whom own bits of land, and somebody gives out because the high-value apartment block is going on one person's land and either the no-value street or playground is on somebody else's. So you have to find a mechanism to pool all the ownership at the outset and redistribute the gains or just take it over from the context of the state. I want to come back to I want to come back to George and Limerick in a minute and your own work in trying to restore George and Limerick and your own house. But a lot of what you're saying there about the role of the state, I'm sure there are many people listening who think, well, hasn't the state abdicated this to the vulture funds? 
and to the giant institutions who are now coming in and who are owning the apartment blocks and are then renting them out at prices that many consider to be unaffordable. Yeah, so so this is a, a, a topic that we probably need another full hour to, to, to go through in general. But but I, I I think it's important in the context. I mean, I, some of the criticism is valid, right? I mean, I think there hasn't been a movement in policy from the sort of 2012, 2013 area when we couldn't find a, a floor to household value and, and property values and we needed investment to floor the, the asset prices or it would have continued in free fall, right? Um, and I think policy changes could have been made in subsequent years. Sorry, can I just get an explanation of this? And sorry, this maybe is bouncing around the place a little bit, but I think an awful lot of people have put a decade ago almost out of their mind. They, It's like, I suppose they say, it's like childbirth that, you know, women forget what childbirth was like or else they wouldn't go through it again. We maybe are guilty in this country of forgetting how broke the country was a decade and more ago as a result of the property crash. But what you say is at that time, nobody was buying anything. So if nobody was buying anything in property or investing in property, that would imply the price would have to continue going lower until such time as somebody would come in. So the mechanisms were put in place to try and encourage foreign capital, because we had none in this country, to come in. And that seems to have been forgotten. Uh, well, I'll never do childbirth, thankfully, but I, I, but I don't want to go through what I went through 10 or 15, 12 years ago either, right? And hopefully we won't. But we're in very dangerous territory again, right, in terms of what's coming down the track. I mean, it reminds me a lot more of the 70s than, than, than the last crisis. But I, I think you're absolutely right, which is that the kind of conversations that my successor, John Hogan, is having today leading up to the budget are so remarkably different from the ones that we were having back then um, as to be unbelievable in the context of, 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 of a 10-year period, right? I mean, some, some sort of examples, right? I mean, because I just kind of looked at a couple of things from, from that time before I came in, right? So, so in the period from, say, 2011, 12, 13, right? Household wealth in Ireland, so all the wealth of all the households across Ireland, had dropped from about 700 million to 450 million, or billion, sorry. Um, property prices obviously had, had, had dropped. And, and, and what you say is absolutely right. If you look at property crashes that have occurred across, across historic, and we were looking at this and trying to analyze what would happen, typically what happens is that you end up hitting a floor and you get a very quick rebound by maybe 10% or so, because all of a sudden people start looking and saying, somebody's buying. And it, depending on who that buyer is, they can give more or less confidence, you know, to other people. And then people with money actually come in and do so, right? At the time of the crisis, I mean, we were the basket case of Europe, right? We, we were lucky because we were followed by others. And in fact, some of them were even bigger than us, which meant that there were policy changes, particularly around the saving of the euro and what the ECB did that you couldn't even have anticipated happening in 2012. But the state was, the cost of state borrowing in just before the crisis, right, or in the middle of the crisis, and everyone's focused on interest rates and their mortgages going up at the moment, right? The Irish state couldn't borrow two-year money at 25%, which by definition means that all the rest of the people in Ireland were not as trustworthy, creditworthy as the state. They were going to pay even more if we hadn't artificially sort of allowed mortgages to remain at, at rates that, that, that were in existence and we didn't have to track our mortgages and stuff like that. So 
the, the, it was so important to get a floor. I mean, I think you and I have talked about it in the past. NAMA, which bought assets that ostensibly had been worth 70 you know, billion at the time for, for about 30 billion, right? All of the external commentators and indeed many internal commentators in Ireland were at the time predicting a breakup of the euro, a significant depreciation in the Irish pound, which would have been replacing the euro here in Ireland, and rating agencies who were important in terms of us getting anybody to give us money because we were running deficits and needed to borrow were telling us that NAMA might not even be worth 30 billion, it could be more, worth zero. But we had borrowed to buy NAMA, so we would still have had another 30 billion to pay. And so the, the focus had really to be to actually kind of create a sense of where that floor was, even if we believed it was higher. We had to stop the free fall. And, and, and only by doing so then could you actually start to get people confident. And of course, what's really important and often forgotten is an interest rate calculation. And I think people are getting to understand that now in terms of affordability in houses, is when the state's cost of borrowing goes down, so does everybody else with it, right? The banks and et cetera. But it also makes it affordable to buy stuff again. As interest rates are very high, it becomes really hard to, to actually buy the asset value. So, so of course, as interest rates came down, first at the national level, and then, of course, with the quantitative easing in the, in the ECB, all of the asset values were going to inflate across the country and indeed across the world, as they have done. And of course, many people may, again, have deliberately forgotten or just don't wish to remember that so many people were in negative equity, that they owed more money on their mortgage than their property was actually worth, something which has changed now again. Uh, and many people were actually losing their homes because they simply didn't have enough income to service those particular debts. But get back into the thing about bringing in the foreign investment. I mean, there, there has been an argument put forward since, despite the clamour at the time, that NAMA must sell the various pieces of land or the loans to actually recoup the money so that the state would get its $30 billion back. If you'd waited, is it possible that NAMA could have gotten even more money back if it had waited for an upturn in the market rather than selling the properties off on the cheap? Uh, of course, if you knew there was an upturn, right? Hindsight's um, a wonderful thing. Hindsight is it? a great thing, right? But, but the way I put it to a rather prominent politician who asked me a similar question, right, recent, not a couple of years ago, right, is if he had been Minister for Finance, right, and the person probably hopes he will be sometime, right, um, if I had walked into his office in 2012 with this great new plan that we'd worked up in the Department of Finance, at a time when we owned 10 billion of real estate effectively in the US through the IBRC portfolio, we owned portions of real estate in many different countries, including sort of, you know, more stuff than on the island here in Ireland and in Northern Ireland, right? If I had walked in at a time when I'd been asking him to cut carers' allowances and all the various other things we had to do because of the need for money and said, I've come up with this really great idea where, and remember, we have just gotten into this crisis because of property speculation and developers, right? And my idea is that we own all this real estate across the world in which we've invested billions of capital and we can't borrow money on the public markets, but we're going to become a property speculator. Because I kind of think that property prices will go up and therefore we'll recoup a lot more money. Right? I think I would have been fired quicker than Tom Scholar was fired out of the Treasury in the last week by, by Liz Trust and her, her new government. Because the concept that we would bet 
the country again a second time on real estate values was crazy, right? Now, I do think that because everything is easy with hindsight and you can look back and say, did we miss a trick, right? I do think that if we had been able to envisage how well the country had recovered and indeed where we are at the moment, right, I think what we should have done is put the LDA concept into the mix, which we didn't have, and actually said, we will set up a land ownership vehicle in Ireland to extract from NAMA, and therefore take it out of that political debate, take it out of the ECB debate, to extract the land that we think is strategic that we might need. So have used it as an opportunity with very long-term thinking in mind that there will come a time again when we will need to be building houses, even though at that time everyone said we built too many houses, we were mad, we'd, we'd never do that again. But actually the way the population was going to move, we would need those houses. So that was the time to assemble the land and have it ready for social housing and other things. Of some or just to have it, just to own it. For the future. And some of this did happen in Limerick, actually. I mean, if you look at in a very small way, the opera centre development downtown was effectively extracted and bought by a development company, a sort of a, a Limerick version of the LDA in some respects, Limerick 2030, and land out in Mungret, which has now become a new school and housing and, and has been developed by Limerick 2030. That was how that sort of came into the ownership of the state. And, and I think to have done that, but, but then I'm not sure I would know where to have gotten the money at the time. But then by bringing in all these foreign investors, and it is quite extraordinary now the amount of property that is owned by foreign investors in Ireland, did we, were we too generous in allowing them to, for example, uh, set up in such a way that they evaded, evaded is the wrong word, I'd be very careful, that, avoided tax by use of things like charitable status. And then now we've allowed a situation to develop whereby these various funds can outbid Irish people as they're trying to buy houses and apartments for themselves. Yeah, again, it goes back to this, there's a kind of a two issues intermixed there, right? One is the property, the structure of the property market in Ireland. And the second thing is how we kind of deal with taxation and, and, and sharing the rewards on, on, on profit, right? So, so you remember my thesis is that, that the state should own much more of the land, right? And that means that the economic rent that effectively accrues on that land belongs to the citizens of Ireland and needs to be cal- captured by them rather than privatized, right? And in the context of land, the one thing you can't do with land is you can't move it. So if somebody wants to invest in Ireland, they have to invest in Ireland for to get Irish property. If they think Dublin is going to boom, then they, they can't buy something in Portugal and benefit from Dublin, right? And so it's, it is typically across the world uh, an asset class that is taxed in the country in which the land is situated, okay? Um, as compared to interest income and dividend income and, and things where... Well, sorry, I, I was just using tech companies and things in the cloud, and this has been a major issue in relation to where they get taxed. Is it where they actually sell the services or where the actual services are produced? Exactly. And so, so but let's leave that aside. But land is land, where land no, it is. No, can't move, right? Yeah. It is where it is. And the buildings on the land are typically tough to move as well, right? So if you were, if I were writing the budget tomorrow... Um, and I guess they're busily writing it in Marion Street, right? I think very, very serious consideration should be given to the idea of, in many ways, copying places like the US, which I think operate this way, right? Where if you rent property in Ireland, 
as a local resident of Ireland, obviously you're paying full tax on that. I mean, we hear about the, the plight of landlords and their tax burden at the moment. But that's appropriate. They earn income, they should pay tax, right? But if you are outside of Ireland, we take a percentage of the rent, uh, whether it's 15, 20, 30 percent, as a withholding tax from that income because it taxation on that belongs in Ireland. And the way you manage that is you declare yourself as being involved in a more active business of, of renting property in Ireland and you get to deduct expenses and you pay on your actual profit as opposed to on the gross rent. And, and I think once the, and I know you spoke about it as well as I did in, in 2014, I mean, the, the turn and the need to have more housing. Once the turn happened, I think we could have, started to really have that kind of a debate the charitable trusts and stuff like that that wasn't government policy that was too many clever accountants and and, and lawyers probably all based in dublin coming up with ways for their clients to actually avoid and it was reprehensible i mean in that in a sense they weren't doing anything illegal but they were using rules in ways that, that they weren't designed to be used right um the exemption from capital gains which was I'll, I'll get it wrong, but it was either a five or seven year exemption. Seven. Right? Seven. Was, was given to locals and to non-Irish investors and large funds and everything else. And that was a different purpose. That was designed to deal with these issues we talked about earlier, which is to get a floor in the market at a time when everybody thought it might go down. And the idea was, even if it goes down for two or three years, in six or seven years, it might have come back up to where you are. So you're kind of in a neutral. And if you get a little bit of gain, that's fine. We do the same for entrepreneurial relief, where we allow people who invest in, in, in SMEs to get some of the income tax-free because it's a riskier business, right? Remember at the time, Matt, and we talked about, you know, it's only 10 years ago, but how many, much people have forgotten about, right? We're... we're at the lowest unemployment rate in the country now at four or something percent, we were dealing with like 14, 15% unemployment, right? We were dealing with people leaving Ireland as opposed to people coming in. And the number of people employed in the country was about 1.8 million because so many people had lost jobs. It's now, what, 2.4 million, right? So 500,000 more jobs have been created in this 10-year period. I remember, uh, you'll be interested in this, I remember a debate when, when Richard Bruton and his team wanted to do an action plan for jobs and there was a lot of pressure to put a number on it and the number put on the action plan for jobs was 100,000 jobs and I remember having a significant conversation when it was brought to our attention in the department that we couldn't publish a plan for failure as I saw it because there were three or four hundred thousand people unemployed so to create a plan that was only going to create 100,000 jobs in a five or six year period was consigning so many people effectively as a message to long-term employment. They may as well have gone to Australia. And in fact, I got into a bit of hot water for telling students in Trinity to go and emigrate for a couple of years, but please come back when we've got this thing fixed. Because that was in many ways the perception of what was going to happen. The idea we would create 500,000 jobs was so far away from the mood music at the time. I mean, I remember touring Dublin, as I did other places across the world, trying to convince people that the Irish state was not going to default and the euro wasn't going to break up. And I couldn't convince the Irish pension funds to buy Irish government bonds. So the idea with this hindsight that suddenly the Irish government and indeed lots of people in Ireland missed an opportunity that was taken up by, by non-Irish people is, is in many ways a fallacy because the opportunity was there some of them were obviously constrained in terms of their, their historical problems from the crisis. But actually, nobody in Ireland wanted to invest in Ireland. There was more confidence about Ireland 
from people outside Ireland, whether it was buying Bank of Ireland, whether it was buying Irish Life, or buying government bonds. I mean, you'll remember the, the famous Franklin Templin investment in, in Irish government bonds of billions, which made some guy's probably career and, 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 and certainly his bonus in the West Coast of America. But there is no way that Irish bond traders were advising clients to be buying Irish government bonds at the time. But then if you come forward to where we are now, and I take everything that you say as a valid point, you say if, if we were perhaps now to tax these institutional investors differently, is there not the danger that they'd say, well, now it's no longer attractive to be in Ireland, and then suddenly we still don't have the money to build all of the apartments and houses that we need all over the country? Yeah, and that's why I think the time has moved on. Right, a we're of a different scenario in terms of our housing crisis, right? So, so the missing piece in all of this still is we're we're kind of analysing pieces of the puzzle without recognising that we're missing a major part of the solution, which is the intervention by the state. At the time, I agreed to do the um, LDA chair role. The idea was that the LDA would actually be scaling to deliver something in the region of 150,000 homes. That's not going to happen, though, though, is it? But it needs to happen. But it's not going to happen. Well, I, I'm not in charge anymore, so, you know... That's why you can actually give a straightforward, honest answer that you don't have to be political about it. All the indications are with the slowness with which the LDA is going about its business... Some estates here, some estates there that it's working on, it hasn't a chance of getting to the target set out for it, has it? Well, it never did, right? So, I mean, in a sense, from very early on, I remember having a debate about the LDA shortly before I left, where we were being told that the allocation of funding to the LDA was 300 million, right? I mean, 300 million is not a lot when it comes to building apartments. Right? And it's even not a lot of money buying land on which you would build the type of things we talked about earlier. And I had to engage in a rather unusual role for a former sec gen of the Department of Finance saying it has to be significant billions of money that's needed. Now, whether it's the LDA does it or the local authorities or even the AHBs, at some respect, I'm agnostic about that. I mean, if the capacity of the LDA... And again, I don't think when I say 150,000 homes... What I want to see is those built. I don't necessarily need to have plumbers and carpenters employed by the LDA actually delivering those homes, right? Go back to George and Limerick. It is possible to have an outcome which involves lots of homes without actually having all of the capital to do it because by definition, the state will never have enough money to build all the houses we do. But, but insofar as at the moment, the state doesn't have that role, because we retreated from the provision of social housing back in the 70s, following the, the, the examples in the UK, our entire market became, in effect, really vulnerable to the type of pressures that are there at the moment. You would discipline the, the, the funds very, very quickly in terms of their outcomes and their expectations if you simply 
had a credible delivery platform for enough housing delivered by the Irish government to make sure that we control the price. I'm almost amused listening to you because... I can see you smiling. I know, because your history of... You started as a lawyer, you worked with GPA, you worked in McCann Fitzgerald as a legal firm, then you went into banking, you worked in New York... You're sounding to me almost like a bit of a socialist here with the role of the state that you're Socialism is not necessarily right. When it comes to land, I think we have a blind spot, right? Neoclassical economic theories are type of stuff that we have been many years listening to, right? I don't think has really properly analysed land. And it's only as we see the impacts of policies that we have in many ways followed, which have gone further in places like the UK and places like the US, that you see the the dangerous kind of, you know, role that land can play in terms of driving inequalities in, in, in society and, and ultimately social unrest, right? I mean, that's what has led to, 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 to we see the rise in, in nationalist populism, right wing, left wing, whatever it might be. You know, I, I think we're going through a period now. I mean, we've, I think others, I mean, I'm not unique in this right I mean everyone else has pointed out that this is the where you and I are a lucky generation in terms of the history of Ireland right we were born early enough that whether it was in Limerick or indeed in Dublin you could probably afford to buy a home um we have ruined that sense certainly Dublin is way less affordable than than places like Limerick but even Limerick Cork and others are becoming unaffordable and we're now looking at a generation of you know, people coming out of university my children this your is children why I'm very interested who in will, will have no possibility no matter like I mean I grew up in a family you know who lived through the 70s and I remember the impact of debt and the conversations around the kitchen table you know between my two parents worried about how they would actually get money to repay the debt because interest rates were going higher and fuel prices were rising dad was working all day in the buildings and coming home in the evening and working on a farm to try and supplement the income and the one thing they absolutely insisted that we all do was education because they believed that if we went through the educational system pushed ourselves in that process that we would actually be all able to own our homes and do all the things that parents expect and want their kids to do. I don't think if I had kids that I would be able to say that to them in today's Ireland. You know, no matter what number of points they get in the leaving cert and go to the, the thing, until we get control of this. And, 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 and so I, don't leave it to market forces. The state has yeah, to intervene. The, the state absolutely has to control market. But, in, in property matters. And I'm not disagreeing with you, but my concern would be that once the state gets in control of it, based on what we have seen, other than for things like COVID and dealing with the financial crash of a decade ago, things move at a glacial pace or things don't get done, that there isn't sufficient ambition there. So rather than agreeing to building a thousand units of housing in a certain place, people complain, actually we'll do with 300 and we'll get it done in a few years' time. And oh, actually, do we actually have the water supplies to go in there? It just seems that we don't, that for all the concerns we're expressing, and I know are widely shared, there isn't a sense of urgency or determination for the state to do what needs to be done. And... and you know, you've, you've mentioned my background in terms of working in, in and being CEO of companies and, and indeed um, being at the regulator and the central bank and, and lawyer. To me, the key is governance. I mean, there's a certain element of it being leadership, but the rest of it is governance, right? And if you think again, going back to what I said about the devolution of power, the people who care most about the cost of housing in Limerick are the people who live in Limerick, right? 
But actually, nobody in Limerick today is really responsible for delivering housing. <laughs> it's all people in rooms and conference rooms in Dublin, you know, and Dara Bryan may be trying his best, but fundamentally, he's a Dublin-based politician, and therefore, the person responsible for the delivery of housing and having the budget to be able to deliver housing in Limerick should be somebody like a directly elected mayor that I campaigned, you know, for, because that change of local government needs to happen. Because if they don't deliver in a couple of years and they're not making it happen, they get kicked out of office. Okay, and I'm conscious of our time, and this is in some respects possibly a more heavier discussion than many of the other podcasts that we've actually had. But there's a couple of things I want to finish up with. Student accommodation in Limerick is something else you want to do but you haven't been able to. And surely there's an enormous need for student accommodation for the students themselves, but also with the knock-on effect that if you provide custom-built student accommodation at scale in Limerick, then those students who are in other private rented accommodation will go there and that frees up private rented accommodation for others. Yeah, you've got it in one, right? So we've been six or seven months now trying to have this conversation with the universities in Limerick and the authorities in Limerick and, and others. Sorry, the universities presumably want you to do this. They should, but they need permission. In, in the case of TUS, for example, they couldn't borrow money, right? Until very recently, they were waiting on a clearance because they had to become a university rather than this an is LIT. The technological, the technological university, university of Limerick, which the used to be LIT. LIT. Yeah. They, they, of course, couldn't borrow money. So even if they wanted to do this a couple of years ago, they didn't have the power statutorily to do it. It requires a ministerial order to give them the power. Everyone says they'll get it. They may even have it by now, you know, in the last couple of weeks. It goes back to your glacial pace of thing. But but I think more fundamentally, it goes back to my point about how do you treat a city like Limerick of a scale and test bed stuff there that actually is equally valid in other cities. I mean, there's nothing unique about that. And you have foreign investment willing to come in, have you? Yeah, but but there is no... I I think one of the great fallacies, when we talked about the funds, right, earlier, and investors, I think maybe the new crisis will will change things, right? But in the last couple of years, money is not an obstacle, (laughs) to the delivery of housing, whether it's student housing or social housing or whatever else. There are plenty of pension funds across the world looking for places to put their money after QE. So that's not the, 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 the missing one. That was the missing problem in 2011. The state didn't have any money and we couldn't convince other people to come in and do stuff, right? Um, the, the, the change in 10 years is such that money is no longer an obstacle. The state has a choice as to how involved or not it wants to be. In, in this, I, for all the reasons we've talked about earlier, would like the state to be playing a significant role in deciding a where the social housing, sorry, the student housing should be, how much of it should be there, using it as a in a, in a kind of a much broader way. So, if you have a neighbourhood you're trying to regenerate, and Limerick, by God, has lots of these neighbourhoods that need to be regenerated, why not put the student housing there rather than in the middle of the campus? Because that creates a dynamic that changes a whole neighbourhood also exposes people who are not as exposed to students in universities in a social way. So, for example, would you... In Colbert, for example, there is a site in the master plan in Colbert identified for 500 student homes. Okay, or even if you say for the TUL, as LIT is now known, Moiros, would that be somewhere similar? Yeah, so so, uh, the the crazy thing about Colbert uh, in terms of scale, right, is, is 
it's now been brought down to about 5,000 people, unfortunately. I think it should be closer to the 10 because you want a dynamic neighborhood rather than a suburban neighborhood downtown, right? But the more important problem with moving it from 10,000 people to 5,000 people is in the city to grow by 50,000 people. You actually now need 10 Colbert stations working in Limerick. It'll take optimistically 10 or 15 years to deliver it. And according to the population growth plan for Limerick, all of those areas have to be delivered in 15 years. So we should be started not just on Colbert. We don't need to accelerate Colbert. We need to accelerate the other nine Colberts that should be happening in Limerick today. Right? And we're so far away from that in terms of the conversations that, that it's really depressing. Right? But, but Myras is a neighborhood that has huge potential. I mean, it now has an acceptance that they should have a new train station on the, on the Ennis-Shannon you know, Limerick route, in fact, for coming down from Dublin, it would then never be connected to Dublin. It would be two stops after Colbert, right? It would be the first railway station in an urban environment in Ireland after New York, you know, when you come off uh, a train in Shannon and get across it. So, so the idea of creating a kind of, a, you know, a Sandyford environment, but with housing or Dundrum Sandyford in my Ross is perfectly feasible if there was a political will to do so. Right, as part of the, the focus of, of, of where you develop it. Myras probably, by Colbert standards, could be 20,000 people. You know, and of course, a starting point for that could be 1,000 students. I, I'm sorry to say, I mean, Myras might be known nationally as a, an area which has suffered from social deprivation and indeed at times crime. This would be able to rejuvenate and, and rebuild that particular area. Absolutely, and do so in a way that doesn't displace the existing communities, but provides the facilities, the jobs and everything for them to coexist. And I know we're talking a lot about Limerick, but these are templates that could be used all around the country for us to have a better country in which to live. And there is one other one that just sort of grabs me uh, that I know you've spoken about, fines. You've mentioned it earlier. But tell us about the plan for growing fines, where potentially this is, could be the hub of where wind energy is brought in from offshore Ireland onto mainland Ireland and the plans that the planners have for the development of fines. Yeah, so, so one of the things I, I can do these days in my time is I can sort of read documents and comment openly on them, right? So fines was actually one of the, the, the things that I picked up on the, uh, in the Limerick Development Plan. Right? So, so nationally, at least, um, there is a, an understandable desire to not allow every county to pick all their towns and have huge amounts of growth potential for them with the result that they're zoning land everywhere and everyone's building more of the housing that we, we saw in the, in the noughties, right? Um, and so there's these caps on the, the, the scale of growth you can have for, for towns. But, but Foynes just jumped out at me. I mean, Limerick actually has very few large towns. Um, Newcastle West is relatively small. I mean, Trim grew by 9,000 people. That's why more, you know, um, over a short period of time, whereas Newcastle West is actually still below the, the sort of 20,000. Ennis is almost the biggest local town if you if you think about it ignoring county boundaries um but but there are places in the country that when you stand back and look at them you said this is different in terms of its potential for growth so finds and you saw it only this week in the european union's desire to have renewable offshore wind play such an important role finds is with cork probably going to necessarily be the epicenter of an offshore wind industry in Ireland, if we have it. And, and for people to understand, I mean, because I've been blown away by this potential, this isn't to create energy for Ireland. 
This is the equivalent of North Sea oil, you know, where we actually create enough energy for Ireland and we're also creating eight or nine times that which we're exporting. You know, and there is a way to do that where we import all of the the wind vanes and we import all the technology from companies in Norway or France or wherever, and we just kind of operate a little bit like we do with our FDI. Or there's a way for Ireland to say this is the future and we're going there. And and Foyne's already in preparation for that has been approved to do several hundred million of investment in the port over the next couple of years. So the development plan comes out for Limerick. And it suggests that this town, which is actually, I don't know if you know it, but it's very well situated as a place to live. It's right on the estuary. There's a marina there. There's schools. There's and it's now going to benefit, as you and said earlier, from the new bypass. It will have both a new bypass and indeed an upgrading of the railway system, which is going to deal first with freight, but could deal with passenger connectivity from Fines so that you could actually just hop on a train and go to Limerick from Fines or indeed to Dublin. So effectively, motorway is going to come... From the motorway will, will, Fines, will, will, will accommodate up, this traffic. Yeah, the motorway will avoid Adair and has just been approved by Onboard Planola, but effectively end up in, in Fines. So it's designed to be able to allow articulated trucks and, and heavier passageways. So that gives you an opportunity as well, given that the infrastructure has been put in place with the roads to create a new larger town. Uh, precisely. So here is the state committing to 450 billion or a million, sorry, of a road infrastructure. The train is much cheaper because it's only 30 or 40 million because we already have the lines and the land, right? But call that half a billion of, of, of investment, right? Sorry, 500 billion. Sorry, so 500, 500 million. So sorry, half a billion, right? Million, it's sorry, hard to keep our millions yes. and our billions straight. Sorry, yeah, my apologies. Um, but we don't own the land around fines other than the port, right? And the Limerick Development Plan provides for an increase in the population of fines over the next five years of, I think it's either 50 people or 50 households, right? right? That's so, all. That's all, right? And of that, the decision was made that 85% of those will be outside the town centre. So effectively, probably people who want one-off housing for their sons and daughters or, or whatever else, right? So we have 15 new homes to be built in fines in the next five years. So almost structurally, anybody who goes to work on any of this investment in fines is driving to fines for the next five years because they have to live somewhere else. Alternatively, we could have done a master planning of fines and said, this is a town. This is sort of the way, frankly, that the, the UK and indeed the Danes and others would do it, that has so many things now going for it, so much investment by the state, that of the spaces across the whole country where we think we should put a thousand people or whatever, well, that's the, clearly one of the places we should do it. So if we're building new towns in Cherrywood and Adamstown and things like that, they can't all be in Dublin because this goes, you know, only increasing the population of Dublin. We should be doing it in areas of rural Ireland. That have a potential for significant growth, either because they're connected to transport, industry is coming their way. And And yet the potential is clearly here in Foynes and you're limiting it to either 50 additional people or 50 additional households and also not necessarily all built within the town either. Which is the worst part of it. But I suppose in the context of 50 houses, it's not that bad. If it was 500, it would be but a bigger problem. But it's more problem. sort of ribbon development. Yeah. But, but it, 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 it is what I meant earlier by these two competing development ideas about, about the country, right? Okay, listen, we are nearly out of we're time. We're going to be out of time we before a, we've solved all the problems. We're right? not going to solve it. But actually, just tell me a little bit about 
what you've done with those houses in George and Limerick? Because you're living in one, but you've also redeveloped yeah, Well, we're not living in it yet, but we're a long way from living it because actually part of, we talked about my, my illness earlier, is one of the things we did actually was to, it was to defer that distress of actually doing a house renovation. Um, well, actually, to be more accurate, we are still focusing on doing the outside of the house and it's the inside, which has probably still got pigeons, more pigeons residing in it than anything else, right? Um, and again, it goes back to my point that actually the Georgian quarter, what happens in public realm, it's really important that the, the outside of these houses and buildings are as nice as they can be, because actually that's what everyone else sees. So in fact, even if you could do nothing but Georgian Limerick, but do up all the outsides and put flower pots and beds and have put lamps in them, it would automatically change the perception of the area without having to do the inside. And then would encourage people to perhaps come and invest. To come and do them again. Although yeah. it does strike me that, and as I said, knowing the area through walking around it, not knowing it well, and it does look like you have potentially beautiful buildings, would families want to live in them if you don't have the other facilities available, such as play areas, football grounds, that people do want to go and live in the suburbs because they have the amenities and facilities that are not necessarily in the city centre. Yeah, well, but you're absolutely right, right? So I think there are two types of people in Ireland, right? I mean, there are those, and we're very fortunate because we are going through this massive increase in population, right? You know, 500,000 more people living in the country recently, and not all of them Irish. So they don't all believe that they should have a bungalow and a grisselina hedge and a half an acre of ground as their perfect home, right? Uh, and they also also believe in something important, which is mobility of housing, so that you don't stay in a house all your life, right? But but the Culber Quarter example, which is really literally two minutes away from George and Limerick, I mean, it's, it's if, if Culber Quarter gets built, George and Limerick is the same size as Culber Quarter with the station in the middle. There's an opportunity to provide quality services and cultural amenities. I mean, Limerick doesn't have a cinema complex, right, downtown. I mean, the Bell Table put on cinemas on a Monday night, right? So if you like movies, you do not want to live in Limerick City Centre. You want to live out beside you the Castle Shop Centre or Jetland, right? And, and there's an intervention that's relatively costless that the state could actually do and not rely on the public sector to do it. You know, and it's not happening, right? But, but it is really important from my perspective, as somebody who, I mean, I'm Limerick born, you know, well, not born, but, but, but raised, and I had chosen to live in the Georgian area, A, because actually, frankly, you've got a lot more square meterage for your euro than you would anywhere else in Limerick. Uh, I didn't want to be commuting in from Adair or from the obvious places that people would suggest you should be living, because I feel urban since I went to secondary school, both Limerick and New York and everything else. But, but, but I do miss the type of services that you would see in Dublin and you probably would see even in Cork that aren't in the downtown area Limerick. And so the investment that really matters is not tax relief for people to be doing up development of Georgian buildings. It's actually putting in those facilities so that when you think about moving to Limerick, the place you want to be is there because there are more things within walking distance. And one final one, and God, we could probably spend a half an hour talking about this, so we'll try and do it quickly. This is the hard media last question, right? No, it's just the rent or buy, because there's a big thing that Irish people want to own. And I think I referred to it earlier that one of the real bugbears for the younger generation at present is they find it very hard to be able to afford to buy so they have to rent. And then, bizarrely, they find that their rent is actually more expensive than the mortgage would be. And they also look to the future and they think, well, if I end up renting, what's going to happen to me in my retirement years? Because if I still have to rent 
and I don't have the same income because my pension doesn't pay me what my job does, or do I even have a pension, what's going to happen to them if they don't actually own a house for their older years? Yeah, so this is a bit like the state intervention earlier. You're going to accuse me of definitely being a socialist by the time we finish this section, right? So we can't solve that problem at the moment, okay? The, the, the gut in reaction in Ireland is to solve that problem by having everybody own their homes, right? So that they all own their homes by the time they finish. And it's a bit like trying to deal with, you know, investment funds renting without having the state ownership of, of, of a significant body of land. The state has the capacity in the delivery of rental accommodation into Ireland to solve all of the problems that we're talking about, right? They could actually have a product whereby you can rent a state apartment, essentially paying for it during your working life, and you continue to live in it for as long as you live thereafter. And the state in many ways doesn't matter because it reverts to the state afterwards and there's always going to be somebody else to take over the, owner, the, the occupation so of that So your family wouldn't have the right to take over the house or apartment in which you have been living? Not necessarily. They may be the ones to take over, as indeed anybody else, but the state should actually decide who should get it. And it goes back to this, I mean, I, maybe I am becoming a bit more radical after, after a cancer diagnosis, right? Um, it's the same problem. By giving away that apartment to somebody, whether it's contractually to their kids or their nephew or somebody living with them, we're depriving somebody else who might be more deserving. And the state's role should be to remain a kind of an arbitrator of who needs what most or what that apartment should be. We might be knocking that apartment because that might actually need to be rebuilt as a healthcare centre. And, and that's what we traded away in the 70s when we stopped building social housing and sold it. We can solve the rental market, but we, it needs a very, very different approach to rental. Remember, Germany doesn't have home ownership, even at our level, right? And if you look at pure economics, and this is going to sound bizarre, and maybe it's not the right thing to finish up, home ownership is not necessarily the best way to run a country. Because for all the reasons I mentioned, it is giving ownership and I'm saying that as a homeowner, right? Because, and I would tell everybody in today's market in Ireland, you should be trying to be a homeowner because it's all stacked in favor of home ownership. There are many tax exemptions, tax reliefs for home ownership. Land values will keep going up, which means that the people paying rent are actually paying to the people who own the land. So it's costing them money and it's going to the value of people who own in Ireland. That's the way we've set up our structure. Maybe it's because of famine and, 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 and our history, but it's not necessarily the right model. And in the context of all the solutions, and many of them are simplistic, some of them are better to be here in housing. I don't think that I've really heard this comprehensive solution that deals with the sort of the land, the deprivation of ownership, if I call it that, by giving it to one person as opposed to the commonage that we used to have beforehand, and this concept of tenure in the rental market. And once you kind of align to those, then your tax system follows. So you actually tax people who are getting rent properly, whether they're foreign or domestic. You maybe don't give as many exemptions to people for passing on ownership of property to new generations. And this is all hard stuff. I mean, I've seen the reaction to the Commission of Taxation report already, you know, which shows that we have some hard decisions to make as a country before the social unrest makes those happen for us. And, and that includes much more land taxation. And, and that's fair. I mean, I, as, a, as a person who owns land, you know, go back to our numbers just to remind people when they listen. Irish wealth as a nation, I mean, all our households, has gone from 450 billion to a trillion in of, 10 years. Of which two thirds is property is property. 
And most of that property is private ownership of homes, which will never be taxed by the state because it'll be effectively exempt under the, the residential, under the type of reliefs we give. And then remember where we are to just kind of try and bring this all together for people. People living in Dublin are seeing way more appreciation than people living outside of Dublin, which they're getting all tax free. And you wonder why people like me down in Limerick are feeling like we're not being treated sort of as fairly in the context of that. And it's, I don't think we thought it through properly um, as to how we were getting there. And it's really important that we have that honest conversation. Maybe the Commission of Taxation report is one that will do it. Land value taxation, you know, more taxation of local property, um, I think is, is really essential if we are going to do a good job at trying to rebalance this inequality. John Moran, thank you so much for taking the time and best wishes for the rest of your treatment. Thanks a million. It was a really fabulous chat. So look forward to round two because we still haven't solved all the problems. And that was John Moran, a former Secretary General of the Department of Finance, former Chairman of the Land Development Agency and many other things besides. Hope you enjoyed listening to his contribution on Magnified with Matt Cooper. If you did, please let your friends and colleagues know. Please share it via social media and also tune in to some of the previous editions there are about 20 previous interviews there now for you to enjoy and many many more to come so for me matt cooper thank you for joining us on magnified with matt cooper